Well, good morning, Cornerstone and guests. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the chair in front of you. Um, Our reading this morning will be found on page 944 of the church Bible. And if you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers and the verse numbers are the little numbers. We'll begin reading in verse 31, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. So verse 31, which in your church Bible should be in the bottom right-hand corner. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. I'll read, and then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together. And then we'll sort of camp out in verses 33 and 34 before we wrap up. Should be around 30 minutes or so. It's good to have you all. Romans chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, don't leave me alone this morning. If your spirit doesn't come and do his holy work, then I am wasting your people's time. So come, send your spirit again anew, afresh this morning. Give understanding. Open our eyes to see the wonderful glories, the excellencies of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Strengthen us. Sustain us through your word. Lord, if there's something in my notes which is unhelpful, I pray that you would be kind and enable your people to forget it. But whatever is here that is helpful, I pray that your people remember it, are encouraged by it, 
used by you to create and form Christ's likeness in them for the furtherance and advance of the gospel. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. These lyrics or to a song written by a king. They're recorded in your Bible in Psalm 62. We don't know the exact reason why King David wrote this, but anyone who's been a Christian for even a little while can surmise the reason. Souls waiting for God in silence is just something every Christian knows. With questions unanswered, with the future uncertain, we wait. We have always been a waiting people. It's in our spiritual DNA to wait. We talk about it. We sing about it. We write about it. We pray about it. In fact, the Bible sort of ends on an awaiting prayer. Christians, if anything, are awaiting people. 2,000 years ago, with their hero degraded and disgraced and dead on a cross, the disciples waited. They had spent three years with this man who had turned their life right side up. Who gave them purpose and joy. Who filled them with energy and boldness. On Sunday, he had entered Jerusalem, the conquering Savior, the King, for whom they called Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by Friday, he was dead. Betrayed by one of his own, rejected by the very people that he came to save, they nailed him to a cross. And he asphyxiated under the heavy weight of his own failing body. And Jesus lay lifeless in a tomb, silent, like the heavens. And with their courage as dead, As the body of the Lord, the disciples hid themselves and waited. They didn't even know what they were waiting for. A chance to get out of the city, maybe? Someone to come and tell them it was going to be okay? Something to assure them they hadn't wasted the last three years of their life? Time to get back home to resume their old life as fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots. But none of that would come. Saturday was silent. Suffocatingly silent. 
on Saturday, God did nothing. Said nothing. And the disciples waited. And then, on Sunday morning, early in the morning, one of the ladies broke into the place where they were hiding with astonishing news. She had seen the Lord. He was alive. And he came to her. And he was waiting for them in Galilee. So the disciples reunite with the Lord. And their lives are changed forever. Jesus was alive. Just as he had predicted, he had kept his promise. And from that moment on, everything was different. The meekest among them became bold as a lion. Instead of choking in fear, they were fierce preachers of the gospel. Instead of hiding for their lives, they laid their lives down. Instead of fleeing from suffering, they rejoiced in it. Instead of keeping the news to themselves, they went to the nations and told them about it. What about the resurrection of Jesus changed the apostles so much? What did they know about Jesus' resurrection that transformed them so dramatically? Well, we'll let one of them tell us what they knew about the resurrection from Romans chapter 8. So here's the big idea this morning. You can see this on the back side of your worship guide. Bank everything on Jesus. Because the resurrection is the invisible, invincible defense for, not invisible in your handout, it's invisible. Thanks to autocorrect on my laptop. Bank everything on Jesus because the resurrection is the invincible defense for and absolute guarantee of eternal life. Bank everything on Jesus because the resurrection is the invincible defense for and absolute guarantee of eternal life. So there'll be three parts to the sermon this morning. Number one, we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus being the invincible defense against all accusations against those who trust in him. Then we'll look at the resurrection being the absolute guarantee of eternal life for all who believe in him. And then lastly, we'll examine what it looks like to bank everything on Jesus. So as I said, we'll camp out in verses 33 and 34. So let's go ahead and get started in verse 33 and let's read it again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This part in the Bible is a letter written sometime after Jesus' resurrection by a man named Paul, who used to be a persecutor of the church, who the Lord came to and saved him, became a proponent for Jesus. And he writes this letter to a church, a Christian church in the city of Rome, the same city of Rome that you're thinking of. And he's telling them about the good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, and the, and the implications of Jesus' ministry on them and their lives. So he's eight chapters in or so, and he's asking a bunch of rhetorical questions. He's been doing that since the beginning of this letter, but here all the rhetorical questions, they kind of come in quick succession. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus didn't spare his own son to save us, then how, how should we expect him to preserve us? 
Is there anything that can separate us from his love? And then the question that opens this verse is, what shall we say to these things? In verse 7, or for seven chapters, the apostle has been working out the answer to a question. The book of Romans, most of it is about answering this simple question. How can a holy and just God pardon guilty sinners? That's what Romans is about. How can a holy and just God pardon guilty sinners like us? Have you ever wondered that? How can God just forgive sinners like us and still remain just? We talked about this yesterday in our men's group. Couldn't God just ignore sin? Couldn't he just overlook it? And we've all made bad decisions, right? We've all broken rules. So why couldn't God just be like, look, it's cool, you know, everybody's on a journey, you know. Best of luck. But you see, God can't overlook sin. God can't ignore sin. God can't excuse it. Because God is just. What have you heard about a judge who listened to a case of a drunk driver who crashed into a minivan and killed a family? And the judge was like, look, it's cool. Like, I've made bad decisions in my life. Clearly, you've made bad decisions in your life. Hashtag, we're all on a journey. And he set the driver free. Well, that'd be unjust, wouldn't it? He would not be a just judge. But God's the same. He cannot just ignore sin because God is just. But God is also holy. God has every right to condemn every sinner with the just judgment of their sin. He could do that. And he'd be right to do that. There's a penalty that sin deserves, and we've all committed sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, desiring to show the gloriousness of his grace, sent his only son, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, who wrapped himself in humanity to pay the penalty of his people's sin. Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. And all the sentences against God's people have been paid by Jesus on the cross. He, the innocent one, took the judgment of God. And we, the guilty ones, receive the pardon. The resurrection is the unassailable defense against accusations of guilt. On the cross, Jesus paid the guilty sentence of all the sins of his people. The sentence has been carried out. And since he himself was without sin, death had no hold on him. It had no jurisdiction on him. So God raised him from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is a statement to the universe, a declaration in the celestial courtroom that the record of sin has been marked paid. Here's how the Bible puts it in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin carried the death penalty. And God nailed our record to the cross. And when Jesus died, that penalty was paid. The resurrection proves God keeps his promises. God promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the cross is exactly how they're saved. All who believe in Jesus Christ, who turn to him by faith, trusting in his death on the cross, are forgiven of their sin, granted eternal life. Dear sinner, flee to the cross of Christ. He is your only refuge from the judgment of God. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Receive the free gift of eternal life. So back to Paul's question here in Romans 8. Who will bring charges against God's elect? After all that you've just heard, who will be there to bring charges? What charges will stick? None. It is God who justifies. The scars on the resurrected body of Jesus mark all of our accusations paid for. The celestial gavel has fallen. The great eternal judge of heaven has declared over you not guilty. Christian, you are as forgiven as Jesus is alive. Whatever charges are leveled against you by the world, by your conscience, by the very devils of hell, your invincible defense is this. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is the invincible defense against all churches. And it is also the guarantee of eternal life. Have a look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Paul asks. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Note the four things Jesus has done and is doing to secure eternal life for his people. Number one, Paul says Jesus died. Number two, Jesus was raised. Number three, Jesus is at the right hand of God. And number four, Jesus is interceding for them. Cornerstone, what is your absolute guarantee of eternal life? The death, the resurrection, the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. What is your hope as you wait through the Saturdays in your life? How will you know that God hears you? How will you know that salvation will come from the Lord? What assurance do you have? Is it not this? That the grave is empty, Jesus is alive, and heaven's throne is occupied. 
But until the final day of redemption, we wait. You see, as Christians, we're on this side of Easter, but we're still on that side of our resurrection. We're on this side of Jesus' resurrection, but we're on that side of our resurrection. And until the last day, we will endure this one. We will trust in God's goodness. We will trust in God's faithfulness until the day when our groaning turns into our glorying. Unlike the disciples on Holy Saturday, we wait with assurance. We're on this side of Easter. The promise has been made and guaranteed by the risen Lord. And so we wait, but not without hope. We wait with eager expectation that it will be accomplished, all that He's promised. And so whatever He makes for us to endure, we know that we will endure. Whatever God wills for us to suffer, we know that it's for our good. Because God poured out His wrath on His Son to pour out His love on His people. Come what may, it is never God's displeasure, but it is always our eternal good. Here's how the apostle put it earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 5. He writes, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Notice the wonderful assurance for every Christian here in Romans 8. Verse 35, Paul asks another rhetorical question and then answers it. Follow along in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation separate us? Will distress? Well, how about persecution? What if we endure famine? What if we're naked? What about danger? What about sword? What about bombs on a Sunday morning? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then here comes the answer. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We wait because we know a glorious answer is coming. We wait because we know that God loves us. And there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God. And there's nothing that anyone else can do to separate you from the love of God. We wait, come what may. Jesus is alive. God loves us. There is our hope. Cornerstone, no. Trusting in Christ, whatever God has for you to suffer, you will endure to the very end. How do you know that? Is it because you're very, very determined? 
Is it because you're very, very strong? No, it's because you have an intercessor. Because Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. It means that Jesus is your go-between. He's appealing to God on your behalf. He is your defense. That means that if you are in Christ, at this very moment, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is praying for you. Appealing to God against the condemnation of your guilt. Giving His own righteousness as your plea. It's astonishing. But it should sound familiar. Remember that the Lord told his disciple Peter, before Peter betrayed him, he said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. On Good Friday morning, Peter denied the Lord three times. But the father heard the prayer of his son. And throughout his sifting, Peter's faith did not ultimately fail. God enabled Simon Peter to turn back in repentance and to strengthen his brothers. Dear Christian, see the resurrected Lord at the right hand of God interceding for you. How do you know that you will endure to the end and be saved? What absolute guarantee do you have for eternal life? How do you know that you will wake up tomorrow a Christian? How do you know that when you receive the diagnosis over the phone, it won't kill you? You have a resurrected Lord at the right hand of God interceding for you. And you have his sure promise from Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him by faith since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. My non-Christian guest, I'm glad you came to church today. Easter's the perfect day to come to church because here you learn the reasons why we Christians have to rejoice You get to see that our defense and our guarantee of eternal life is that our Savior has been risen from the dead. And that we, who were once bound for eternity in hell, have been saved by Christ. And I wonder what assurance you have. What guarantee do you have? Well, I hope it's not that you think yourself to be a good person. Not that I doubt that you are a good person. I'm sure that you are a very good person. It's just that being a good person is not nearly good enough. God requires a perfect standard. 
And so why should you expect that God would lower his standards for you? Friend, don't leave here trusting in yourself that you're good. Let go of that. Trust in the only sure foundation, Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later. Confess your sins and turn to Jesus. He's your only guarantee. He's your only assurance. He's your only defense. He is the righteousness that you need. He's the good that you aren't. Well, if you've never done that today, might I just encourage you after the service today to talk to someone. Talk to someone who looks like a regular around here. These are my friends, and I know they'd be happy to talk with you about how to have eternal life in Jesus. But if you don't know anyone here, please come to me, and I'd be happy to tell you how you can have peace with God. Here's my final point. Because of all that we've seen so far, bank everything on Jesus. Those same disciples hid in fear on Good Friday would go on to spend the remainder of their lives in fearless service of the gospel. All but one of them probably died as martyrs. And this has continued down the centuries. Men and women suffering disgrace and mocking and reproach and affliction, joyfully accepting the plundering of their property, being tortured and jailed, even killed for the name of Jesus. This continues even to this very day that Michael prayed for earlier. In Sri Lanka, 200-some Christians were gathering for worship where bombs went off. And guess what's going to happen next Sunday? The ones that survived are going to gather and worship again. But it's been this way forever, for the last 2,000 years. Why? Why would Christians for 2,000 years believe that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ was worth risking everything? Why would Christians spend their hard-earned retirement to become missionaries? Why would college graduates purposefully seek out jobs in parts of the world without access to the gospel? Why would Christians risk a successful career by standing on the scriptures? Because the risen Savior is the rock-solid defense for an absolute guarantee of eternal life. Because Christians know they were made for something bigger than just this life. And so they'll bank everything on Jesus. They'll spend themselves bringing the good news to their family, to their friends, to their coworkers, even to the nations. All Christians are going to suffer. But the grave is empty and Jesus is praying. And with an empty grave and an interceding Savior, the afflictions of this life are light and momentary and working in us an eternal weight of glory. Jesus is alive at the right hand of God praying for us. He is our intercessor. We need no other intercessor. We need no other go-between. We need nothing else to let us know that it's going to be okay. It means that the pill bottle won't make it okay. It means that we don't need to turn to any bottle to know that it's going to be okay. We don't need a social status to plead our case. We have Christ. We don't need a successful career to plead our case. We have Christ. We don't need a clean and ordered life to make our case. We have Christ. 
We don't need a man or a woman to plead our case and validate us. We have Christ. How do you know that you're wanted? Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus is right now praying for you. Suddenly you know that you're wanted. Jesus is alive at the right hand of God praying. Which means your loveless marriage can endure. Which means that your wayward child can be reached. Which means that your needs can be met. The storms can be weathered. Which means that instead of wallowing in pity for what could have been, the resurrection tells us that maybe this is God's way of showing us that He is all we need. Look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. See the Son praying to His Father with your name on His lips. Father, sustain her. Father, hold her. She's mine. Father, keep him. I paid for him with my blood. Hold him. Strengthen him. He's mine. This is the risen Jesus interceding for you. When an eternity of unending delight is guaranteed, all that glitters in this life grows dim. The empty grave is greater than a full bottle. Those pills lose their promise of escape. Savings loses the promise of safety. Pornography is emptied of its appeal because you've tasted of the glory of the age to come. You've sampled the superior pleasures of Christ. When eternity is guaranteed, there's nothing to fear. Persecution, tribulation, loneliness, sickness, another bomb, all that does is make us trust Jesus that much more. This is Resurrection Sunday. Rejoice in your risen Lord. But don't forget the resurrection on those lonely Saturdays. Don't forget the promises of God as you wait. There will be days of waiting. Because we are on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, but we're on the other side of our own. And until he comes again, we wait. We cling to his promises, knowing that he who made the promise is faithful. And he will bring us to the very end. Bank it all on Jesus. Because an empty grave and an occupied throne tells us you can't lose. Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. We take a moment at the end of our services and we go before the Lord in prayer and we ask Him to forgive us of the sins that He's exposed in our lives.
through this passage. And so if you will join with me as we pray again. Heavenly Father, for you alone we wait in silence. Without accusations of abandonment, without accusations of mistreatment, without accusations even of delay, we wait for you and we wait for your deliverance because you are our hope. You are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our fortress. With you, we will not be shaken. Lord, we confess that we so often have forgotten Jesus' resurrection. We believe it, and yet we act like we don't believe it. In seasons of struggle, when you're calling us to turn to you and trust you, Lord, how often have we despaired, given up hope, Would you forgive us? Lord, we are such frail creatures. Our resolve is so thin. The promises we make are so flimsy. Forgive us. Lord, will you forgive us for not believing that you are working all things together for good? Forgive us for opening our mouths when we should keep them them silent. Forgive us for not waiting as we should. In crisis, we turn to all the wrong things. Some of us to alcohol, some of us to drugs, some of us to sex, some of us to food. We use and abuse one another to justify ourselves. Well, you've shown us today that we don't need to justify ourselves. It is you who justify us. So forgive us, Father. We have sinned. And would you enable us to remember the cross and the resurrection and the ongoing ministry of Jesus on our behalf. Grant that we would endure whatever waiting you've laid out for us. Enable us to trust you in the midst of it and to lift our eyes to the sure guarantee that you are gloriously good. Remind us that you are for us, not against us that you will not fail in your promises to sustain us. And as we go from this place on resurrection morning, we pray that you would make us bastions of your holy light, delighting in Jesus above all, shining the light of contentment in Christ as we wait on your soon return. Make us clear examples of the faithfulness of God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his conquering of the grave. We thank you for him standing next to you in heaven and for his intercessory ministry. May he get all that he deserves from our lives. Amen. Your assurance comes from Psalm 62, verse 5 to 7. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God.